Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13, is the passage we're looking at. Um, but much like, much like, uh, you know, kind of many of the other passages that we've considered already, they all tie together. This isn't kind of like a one-off, random sort of situation here. Um, they, they are linked up, and you find uh, what is being said in the text that we're considering this morning um, is certainly related to what has been said before, um, not just uh, in the beginning of chapter 12, but even stretching uh, quite a bit back quite a bit further. Uh, but to set the kind of the scene for our passage this morning, we do want to remember that this is kind of like um, still kind of a part of the same section of chapter 12. You remember, uh, it, chapter 12 starts off with these words, in the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were trampling one another. So now the crowd is getting bigger, way more people, uh, tons of people gathering. And before they get there, Jesus speaks to his disciples, to the Pharisees, or I mean, to his disciples, and he tells them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, he just had an experience with uh, the Pharisees in the previous passage in uh, chapter 11. Um, where he goes in and dines with a Pharisee, and he kind of has this standoff with them. Uh, and then now he's, he's there with, uh, as the disciples are with him, and he sees the crowd gathering, and he wants to give them kind of this specific word before everybody gets there. And he tells them, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Right, so he says there, everything that you do is going to be um, exposed. It's going to come to light. He says, therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. And so he kind of puts that, that framework in place uh, to let them know what they're facing. Um, but then he tells them, uh, as he moves into the next passage, uh, that as the, as the people gather, not just the disciples and more people are gathering as they're making their way there, he says, I tell you, uh, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, fear him. And so he brings out this uh, kind of theme of fearing God versus fearing man. As, as worried as we can be about the approval of mankind or what other people think about us, uh, Jesus tells us that we ought to be a people who are, uh, are, uh, are primarily focused on knowing and, and um, relating to God, that we shouldn't be operating uh, in response to mankind uh, and what they think about us and what they're expecting of us, but rather we should uh, operate on the basis of what God uh, expects of us, what he is asking us to do. And then as he says that, he, he uh, as, as soon as you, he says that you start to understand like, okay, maybe I should believe him. I should fear God more than I fear man. But then he brings this word of comfort and he tells us, he uses this example that, that of, the, of these sparrows that are sold in the marketplace. And he's like, you know, uh, five of these are sold for two pennies, but, but God knows every single one. Not one of them is forgotten before God. And he says, even the hairs of your head are numbered. But fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. So he's like, as, as much attention to detail as God has over how many birds exist in the marketplace and you, humans don't value them very much, a couple pennies for five of them, he says, God knows exactly how many sparrows there are and he knows how many hairs are on your head and he loves you and values you way more than sparrows. 
So uh, he, he puts us there, and then he calls us to confess Christ, to, to uh, acknowledge Jesus before man. And if we acknowledge Jesus before man, uh, then he will indeed acknowledge us before the heavenly angels uh, and, and God. And, and then uh, he says, but if you deny me before man, I will deny you before the heavenly angels and, uh, and God. And then in the middle of this, then we have this other guy in our passage this morning, uh, a voice shouts out from the crowd. We, we get this, these words in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Right? So Jesus has been saying like all this stuff. And then like some random guy like pipes up and is like, Hey, like teacher, tell, tell my brother to like split this inheritance up. Now it's obvious to Jesus here that this guy has not been listening. Because Jesus hasn't been talking about any of that stuff. He's not paying attention. Jesus has been making this particular case about how you should live in relation to God, how you should live uh, in, in your understanding of, of responding to who he is and, and fearing him versus fearing men. He's, he's giving like this masterful um, uh, layout of, of how we ought to move through life. And then this guy's like, hey, well, um, can we talk about my inheritance here? Right? Everybody, this inheritance situation really doesn't apply to like most of the people in the crowd here. So all of a sudden, this guy's got this one hyper-specific thing that he wants, uh, and, and it highlights to Jesus that this guy, he's got zero idea what's happening. He's not been paying attention all along. Jesus has been speaking, but this guy's just thinking about all of his other, his other like his side hustles, his work, what he's got going on back at home. He's not really listening. He's not really hearing what Jesus is saying. And as you know, as we move through the uh, Gospel of Luke thus far, Jesus is really big on hearing and doing. He really wants you to listen and then put it into practice. He wants you to understand. It's not good enough to just listen, but you've got to do what he's asking you to do. And so we come to the text this morning uh, of this man, and this request comes forth from the crowd. Someone, we don't get very much specifics here, uh, just some guy from the crowd, and he says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So, one thing that is semi-legit uh, here and good for this guy, he addresses Jesus as a teacher. He recognizes him as a respected uh, individual in the community, uh, a rabbi. And, and so, he brings out this, uh, he calls for Jesus to make a ruling on this particular situation. The dispute centers on an inheritance. And this man who's, who's raising this issue, he wants his brother to divide uh, the inheritance. We don't have additional details. We don't get anything else. We don't know um, if the complaining, this guy who's making this complaint is getting zero, if he uh, wants a bigger cut, we, he wants it sooner. Um, we don't get any other details regarding this problem. All we get is like, there's a guy, there's an inheritance, and there's like a brother, and he wants some of it. Like he wants it to be divided. Now, within the community, a rabbi would settle such a dispute. Uh, as those who went through uh, rabbinic school, they would have uh, settled these disputes in in. Um, in the community, you kind of find some descriptions surrounding how to rule on these things in the book of Deuteronomy and Numbers. Uh, but this guy, 
here, he makes this request, and in his request, he's hoping that he's going to uh, ask Jesus uh, for Jesus to make his brother be more generous towards him. Now, I want you to see here that this man is not asking for Jesus's wisdom. He's asking for the outcome that he already desires. He has determined what is happening here. Jesus, I want this. Please tell him that he has to do it. That's, that's how this whole thing is framed up. He doesn't say, Jesus, we have some issues with the inheritance. Can, can you use your wisdom and make a ruling that we will both submit to? He says, here's what I want, Jesus. I want him to divide the inheritance. He has his plans, and he's come, and he said, you've got to do what I need you to do, Jesus. That's why I'm here, and I'm putting you on the spot with all these people around. Everyone here is watching. Everyone here is waiting to see what you're going to say. They're aware of, of your request. What are you going to do, Jesus? Je he's not really giving Jesus the space uh, to assess the situation. He tells him, I know what you must decide. Uh, I need you to do this. Uh, this. My brother, he's got all the inheritance, and uh, I, I would like some of it. I would like a cut of it. But Jesus responds, and he says to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? So he comes back and he says, like, this isn't my job. Like, like I, I'm not ruling over this particular situation. I'm not here to act as a judge over you. I'm not here to arbitrate this situation. In this moment, Jesus refuses to get involved with this discussion. He comes straight out and he's like, look, we're not talking about your particular situation here. He does not want to get involved for a number of reasons, but primarily because that's not why he came. He did not come to be a judge or an arbitrator over these uh, petty squabbles. He came to be the savior of the world. He came to, uh, to conquer the works of the devil. He came to, uh, to defeat Satan's sin and death once and for all. He didn't come to make a ruling on this guy's particular uh, situation with his inheritance. Now this man asks him to rule, and Jesus says, I'm not here to be like a judge or an arbitrator over this. But he does take this opportunity to speak to the crowd. And he speaks to the crowd about covetousness. Now this is a master stroke. You'll see this as we move through. Uh, he speaks here to everybody. And he opens in verse 15 with these words. And he said to them, right? So this man asked the question. Everyone's like, what's, what's Jesus going to do? How's he going to go? And then he speaks to this man and to the crowd. And he says to them, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, he gives this warning to everybody. This isn't just to the guy who asks. This goes as a default blanket statement principle that goes to every single person here. The disciples, the crowd that's assembled. It goes, of course, to this specific man. And he tells him, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. So there's a huge, broad stroke warning to be on guard. Not just against inheritance, not just against 
money, but all forms of, of covetousness. Covetousness. Now, when we hear this situation and this guy says, hey, Jesus, uh, I want you to decide in this situation, uh, my brother, he's got this inheritance, and, uh, you know, could you, could you, like, make a ruling here? I want him to, to split it up with me. Can you tell him to do that? Almost instantaneously, because I know this is how I went, I'd be like, and Jesus is like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'd be like, well, like, I could have a conversation with him and probably figure this out. Right, like, my instinct is to go straight to, like, well, I could probably solve this. Like, you know, or you might think, like, well, let's just, like, hear him out, because probably he's got a good reason for asking. Maybe he's really being taken advantage of. Maybe there's a real good reason. Like, all of a sudden, we could come up with all sorts of reasons why his brother might be asking. And we could come up with all sorts of reasons. Like, no matter who you are, you have some sort of perspective or angle on it as to, like, why this person should or should not get this uh, division of, of the inheritance. You, you just, you're just built that way to think that way. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure this out. But Jesus tells him, Jesus tells him, and the whole crowd, don't covet. Don't covet. Okay, now, what is he getting at here? When he says this, right, when he says this, what he's getting at here is, is the desire for us to have things that God has not given to us. That's what covetousness is. When you recognize what God has given to you, and you see other things that God has given to other people, and you say, oh, God, he made a mistake because I should have that. Like, really, what, what's going on there is that uh, I, that's what I actually wanted and what I, what I needed, and God didn't give me that, and I want that. It's, it's a fundamental dissatisfaction with God's provision in your life. Like, you're looking at what you have, and you're saying, God screwed it up. This is, I, I, I wanted something else. I needed something else, and he didn't give me what I needed. And then you look around at other people, and you say, well, why can't I have that? And so what it ends up being is an argument over uh, who God is and what he has given to you in that exact moment, in that exact time, for your exact need. So you're basically in that moment saying, not just I want something, but like I know better than what I need, than what God uh, has planned for me, or what, what he wants to give me. And so when Jesus says this, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, he goes on and says, for life, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So this desire to have other things that God has not given to you, it leads to a lack of unity. It leads to uh, um, this uh, friction within the community of, of God. It leads to disagreement. It's something that breaks up what God is doing in the individual lives of his people. What God has provided for his people in those specific moments, we ought to celebrate what God is doing, what that work is. It's enough in that moment there, and if he wants to give more, he'll give more. If he wants to give less, he'll give less. Now, Jesus says here to this man and to these people and to us, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his 
possessions. So we ought not to get caught up in the possessions or the pursuit of possessions. Uh, this is, um, to, to get caught up in that is to, is to fundamentally uh, fall into the, the, the trap that Paul describes in Romans chapter 1. He says there that when you, when you um, think that you're going to find life in your possessions, when you're going to find life in something that is created rather than the creator, you devalue God. Here's how he explains it in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. He says, For although they knew God, right, they know about him, they know who he is, they did not honor him as God. So if you know who God is, but you don't recognize him and honor him as God, or give thanks to him, right, so that's, that's the problem there. You're not rightly recognizing him as God. You're saying something else. I want something else. I'm going to be God. I'm going to go pursue something else. He says, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. He says there that when we are covetous, we're, we're actually operating in idolatry. We're devaluing God and we're valuing creation or something that is created or something that is made rather than the creator. Paul goes on to explain it in two other places very specifically, and he puts it in here with like a big, a big list of other things uh, that are um, explicitly called out as sins. He says in, verse, uh, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he goes on to list things that are earthly and that we ought to be rid of. He gives us this list. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He like straight up calls it out. Covetousness, which is idolatry. So he thinks that that is on par with these other things. Impurity, passion, sexual immorality, evil desire. He's like, covetousness on the same level with all these other things. That we, they ought to be put to death. He goes on and speaks similarly in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. He says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, he gives us that parenthetical remark uh, in Ephesians 5, 5, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So all of a sudden now, we've got, uh, we've got this comment about covetousness and idolatry. And then Paul brings in, and he's like, if you, if you covet, you have no inheritance. And this guy's like, I'm coveting, and he's coveting about an inheritance. He's asking Jesus to be like, yo, Jesus, there's an inheritance out there for me, and I want this, and give it to me. Tell him to give it to me. Tell him that I, I deserve this. He's, he's going to bat there. He's not asking Jesus to rule. He's not trusting how God is going to work in his life. He is aiming straight for this. Now, with this background, Jesus then begins to tell a parable to illustrate how absolutely foolish it is to be covetous and to pursue uh, you know, these possessions. He goes off in verse 16 and says this, And he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. So we get no additional details about this guy who's in the parable. 
we get that he's a rich man. Uh, and, you know, he, other than that, he's nameless. He is somebody who we know um, has land that pr- his land produced plentifully. And he has the problem of an abundance of crops. We're not told any of these things are bad. If you read this and you lived in this culture and this society that was based on agriculture, you're just thinking like, this guy must be blessed by God. He's got like this massive amount right here. Like immediately you're like, oh, God gave him like a great harvest. Massive things are happening for him. This is all good. Apparently the harvest for the year, exceptional. We don't get any sort of hint as Jesus moves through this parable that this guy has done anything to take advantage of his community, to uh, increase his, his crops. He has done absolutely nothing wrong in regards to the effort and time that he has put into cultivating his crops. This is like the most upstanding uh, like farmer that you've got. He's just like a guy who's, who, who has been faithful here. And so he has this natural dilemma. He th- has this abundance of crops. And so he thinks to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? This guy comes into this abundance through no fault of his own, through, you know, I mean, he planted the stuff, like he just did the regular kind of farmer situation. Uh, But he had these blessings and now he has to figure out uh, what to do with them. He wants to preserve his crops, we're told. And so he's trying to solve this, this, this situation. What we're getting here, as you start to read through it, you, you get the contrast of someone who is a faithful farmer and who is making practical and seemingly wise business decisions. Like, nothing about this seems to be sketchy. Jesus goes on in verse 18, and he said, uh, describing what this man is, is communicating, and he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have, laid, uh, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. So the man starts to solve his problem. He doesn't have sufficient storage in his current barns, and he develops a plan uh, to expand his storage capability. He's going to tear down his barns, He's going to build new ones, bigger ones, many buildings, and this would cover uh, the ability to store all of his grain. And then not only this, after his expansion, he would have uh, the ability to store much more. He scales in such a way that he's able to to lay up uh, and protect many more of his investments. But the problem as as you move through this as you look at this man working through this situation, is that Jesus explicitly frames him in such a way that this man is is aimed at self-indulgence, that he is aimed at his own leisure. He is exclusively self-interested. He says here that he's going to, right, and Jesus uses kind of this repetitive word and phrasing in his uh, communication here, uh, speaking for this man as an example. He's reflecting the type of attitude uh, that is um, 
harmful and uh, antithetical to the ways of God. He says here that this man is going to uh, tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have laid up uh, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many, many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. This man is described as one who has resolved to solve a problem that is primarily about himself. He's going to live in luxury and self-indulgence. He has a spirit of independence. He is saying to his own soul, he's the captain and master of his own life. He is making the determinations for himself. He thinks he has the entire future planned. And in this, he's going to uh, rest and relax and eat, drink, and be merry. This would have been a common uh, goal, a common uh, phrase of this time. But this man's future is entirely self-centered. Other than that, he just is kind of a regular guy. He is just working through things. He's not done anything to, uh, to get where he's at immorally. But he has remained uh, resolutely steadfast and self-centered. And then we get the response here. The payoff in the parable in verse 20. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Now in the Old Testament, we've said in many other passages before that a fool is someone who acts without God, who acts without wisdom. When they're called out, someone's called out as a fool, it's because uh, they are operating outside of God's ways and they are going against uh, his direction. They've not, um, are, they're not seeking his will primarily and that the way of the fool often ends in destruction. But now we find here that this man is called a fool. He's called a fool by God. Because remember, he has planned. He has been uh, strategic in what he wants to do here. And he has made a way forward. What he wants to do, what he wants to accomplish. And this man, in his independence, thinks, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to have many years of of relaxation and self-indulgence. And I'm going to eat and drink and be merry. But he does not anticipate that his life would be unexpectedly cut short by the one who has authority over his life. Because he doesn't actually have the independence that he thinks he has. He's investing in something. He's he's putting all of his effort into his self-centeredness, his own indulgence. But his soul is required of him. And so God issues this rebuke and takes action. He calls this man a fool. He uh, requires his soul and he rejects this uh, covetousness. He says, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to plan. I'm going to get here in my own way. Now remember, we're connected to this previous section. 
you rewind the tape back to verse 5, remember it's, it's Jesus who tells them, I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, fear him. So he says, you shouldn't be afraid of man. Remember that God has the authority, that God is in charge. This man in the parable has not been listening, much like the man who asked to divide the inheritance. He wasn't listening. So now he gets another chance to hear, uh, you should fear the one who has authority over life and can go beyond the physical. It's another opportunity for him to, to respond. All the benefit of this planning, the labor, it comes crashing down in an instant at God's command. Just when this guy thinks, I'm all set, I'm ready to relax, I'm going to enjoy all of my, my possessions I've acquired, I'm going to sit back and, and just chill. It's all, it's all over in an instant. And he leaves this question out there for, for uh, this man who's in the parable. The things you have prepared, whose will they be? Who's, gonna, who's going to own now the things that, that you prepared for yourself? Because you're not going to own them. Your soul is required. You pursued, you pursued these possessions. You worked hard to acquire all this. And you thought you were going to build all these new barns and tear down your old stuff and, and store it all away. You're going to get into that and you're not going to get to enjoy any of it. And not only that, when you appear before God, you're not going to be able to take any of your abundance of your, your, your grain and your, your crops. You've got nothing. The pursuit of his possessions, the pursuit of this abundance, has left him empty. Has left him with, uh, without anything that he can bring before God. Two passages I want to call your attention to in Psalm 49 Verse 5, uh, we get, throughout the Psalms you find kind of similar phrasing all over the place, but, but there are the, um, there's a couple places here that um, I think are really helpful. Number, number one, in, in Psalm 49, 5, we, we read this, When the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their rich, rich, riches. Excuse me. The, the psalmist there is calling out the, the folly of those who uh, he's, he's seeing in contrast that he's being cheated, he's being taken advantage of. But then there are those who have wealth and riches and they boast in those things. And how that will be folly, it will be foolish. In the book of James, chapter 1, verse 1, we find that the character or, or the end of those who find their identity in, in riches and wealth and abundance and possessions in covetousness or just anything plainly apart from God, uh, have an end uh, that is described as uh, fading. James 1.11, For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers to grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And so you find here that this is uh, what is going to happen to those who are not just rich, right? We're not just talking about people who have wealth, but, but Jesus calls out covetousness, right? So in place of the word rich there, we'll just use 
covetous, right? Which we are all prone to do because Paul told us in those previous passages that it's, you know, idolatry, making idols, seeing that God is devaluing what God has given us and not rightly recognizing him. And so anytime we operate in that, we are falling into this, this trap of wanting things other than what God has provided and given to us. And he tells us here that we ought not to look to how we can uh, bolster our resources. We ought not to be a people who, who look around and say, well, I want that or I want that. But rather, we should be a people who are focused and oriented in another direction. He goes on in verse 21, and he says this, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So the parable that you read that Jesus explains here, it doesn't condemn planning. It doesn't condemn wealth. The issue is what kind of wealth are you building? What kind of wealth are you building? I think the key to the passage here is when people often come to this, you, you kind of look at it uh, and we get stuck in like, okay, well, like, I'm not going to be the guy who just like stores it all away. I'm going to be the person who like, I, I give it away to like people and I'm, I'm active in the community and I'm like using my riches for good. That's not what he's, that's not the answer here. That's not what he's trying to get you uh, to see. The answer comes uh, in that last verse. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What Jesus is saying there in that moment is, he, the goal is for you to be rich toward God and not lay up treasure for yourself. Those are, the, those are the opposing views there. You can be rich toward God or you can lay up treasure for yourself. They don't overlap. Right? And then you can break down how then can you be rich toward God? How can you operate in that? But the main thing that you're, you're trying to see is that it's not by... Uh, it's not by simply trying to lay up treasures for others. It's not by trying to make other people's lives easier. It's not by trying to do good things. The one who relies on God has true wealth, who has what he has, but he trusts in God and relies on God for all things. This is how James explains it in chapter 4, verse 13. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow... We will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Okay, so another financial situation. They're going out. They got money. They're like, we're going to go do business. We're going to work it. We're going we're to go to this town or this town. And we're going we're gonna to trade. We're going to make a profit. And he says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. He's like, your life is short. You could be like the person in Jesus' parable who's like, your soul is required of you, pal. And you think you're going to do something and then it doesn't work out. But then he says in verse 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. That's what he gets down to. You're not independent. You're not deciding for yourself. You're not trying to be like, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make my own decision, and I'm going to go out here, and I'm going to do it, and, you know, God better be on board because I'm going, right? Or he's, if he's not on board, he's going to help me figure it out. After. The, the goal here is to be explicitly focused on 
if the Lord wills, where he goes, what he's doing, how he's doing it, and to follow him into that. This man had spent a lot of time considering how to enjoy his material possessions, but he never considered the state of his soul. He spent a lot of time figuring out, I'm going to build barns, I'm going to do this, I'm going to solve this problem. But he, he was thinking about the future, but he didn't know the future. His concern was for his own experiences. He didn't have room for the consideration of eternity, for his pursuit against God. Or, or not against God, his pursuit uh, of God. And so you have this man who is in the parable, and then you have this man who's outside of the parable. You've got these two men. There's a man who's outside of the parable uh, who requests an inheritance. He, he wants his brother to decide inheritance. He wants more. And then you also have this guy who's inside the parable who has more than he needs. So there's one guy who, who thinks he doesn't have enough, and then the other guy who has more than he needs already. And, and both of them are focused on themselves. In, in this situation, Jesus speaks against them both. Nobody gets let off the hook. The man who's saying, Jesus, please rule against my brother, that guy, he doesn't get let off the hook. Everybody in the crowd, because he, he gives them all the same message, you know, don't be covetous. And then he gives them the parable, and, the, and if you're the type of person who's like, well, I did this because I put in all the work myself, and like, I, I'm the person who actually has everything, and like, I, I did it the right way, I didn't cheat anybody, there's no immorality in how I got here, I just, I'm, I'm just a really good business person, I figured out how to crush it, you also don't get let off the hook. Nobody gets let off the hook. Because the goal isn't to figure out how to be rich, the goal is to figure out how to uh, be rich towards God, Jesus tells us. It's not, how do we figure out money principles? How do we figure out how to be good stewards? And this is the thing about the scriptures. Whenever we come as a church, whenever we come to the, to the scriptures, whenever we come together as a body, whenever we're making decisions in life, we are trying to figure out how to make explicitly Christian decisions that are laser-focused on responding to Christ. That means that you should not be able to find the same type of direction and wisdom in like a random secular business book, right? Because there might be other great principles and tips there, like, you know, uh, about how you ought to operate, but this is the only one that's so countercultural that says the answer is not like give more to the poor only or make sure that you're remembering the widows. The, the Bible also says that. The Bible also says we should take care of the for, for, um, foreigners and the poor. There's all sorts of things like that about we should be wise stewards. There, there, there's all sorts of uh, parables about how you know, we ought to invest well and grow our money in a way that honors God. There's all sorts of like, practical business things that you could think about. But the reality is, is that the goal is to be rich toward God. So you're not going to find that type of emphasis, that focus, everywhere else. If you focus on being rich toward God, then you're going to figure out all the other things. Because as you are rich toward him, of course he's going to help you uh, have his mind and his perspective and figure out how to live for him. 
Of course he's going to, to allow you to operate in that way. Of course he's going to give you that insight and wisdom that you need to make sure that your eyes are open to the needs of the needy, that you are, uh, have the opportunities before you that would allow you to steward well over your resources. Of course he's going to help you if you focus on the right thing. And so the instructions to both of these perspectives are not to correct these perceived injustices. The instructions are to be rich toward God. If you're rich toward God, okay, just track this. If you want to figure out one thing that this is going to help you understand it, if you are rich toward God and your soul is required of you and you go to God, then you only get what you were already, like you only get more rich. Like you're already, then you go to him, right? But if your riches are in like physical abundant possessions and then you're separated from them, you're not getting those. If your perspective is about making God your treasure, your delight, your joy, and you come to the end of your life and you go to meet him, then all you did was get what you were after the whole time. 100% of the time you have success that way. We ought to be a people who are rich toward God, who are not coveting, who we are trusting in his provision. Remember these two brothers. The parable relates, it's not about just like the whole, the whole parable, it's not just about being rich and how, it's not about money, right? Most of us are, get stuck in that and we try to figure out how to like put all these like random like financial arrangements around this. The parable is about what being satisfied in God and recognizing what he has given to us. Not being covetous, being satisfied in what he has provided. The parable opens, or the, the, not the parable, the passage opens with, with these words. The brother. Like, why did this get included? Wouldn't, wouldn't it just be also like as easy to be like, Jesus to be like, that's kind of like a little bit off topic. Like, could we just talk about that like on the side? Because <laughs> that also would have worked. Like, maybe let's take that as a, a sidebar. We'll kind of address that, you know, not with everybody. It's, it's really like a only a you problem, not an everyone problem. But it turns out that it's kind of an everyone problem. Right? It kind of turns out that it is an everyone problem. Because what this guy is fundamentally saying is that relationships in, 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 on this earth are broken. Even family relationships. And even within the family, there are those who prize an inheritance above uh, the relationship. That you could have a, a, blood, uh, a blood brother. Someone who is so close. And they could be like, well, you know, I'm not really going to give you part of this because you don't deserve it. They could cut you out. They could take you completely out of, of, of the, those resources. It might be deserved or it might be undeserved. But it highlights the situation that we are in. It highlights the brokenness of the world and it highlights why Jesus came. 
See, Jesus did come to deal with this situation, but not in the way that this man wanted. This isn't about the money. When this guy says, hey, help tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me, Jesus dives in to it, not because he only wants to speak about covetous, covetousness, but because he wants us to understand and us to have confidence in the inheritance that belongs to us as members of the family of God. Remember, he's been saying this whole time throughout it. Listen to me. Do my words. Follow me. Here are the people who are in my family. Here are the people who are not. He's, he's laid down your life, and you're going to find it in me. So there's all these promises that are kind of all over the place. And as that, we're kind of wondering, like, Jesus, are you going to, like, like, follow through on this? Are you going to keep your word? And this guy gets stuck on the earthly things. And Jesus has said, lose your life on, on this earth. Don't worry about it. Find your life in me. You're going to have you're gonna have a flow flourishing and abundant life and success, and, and, and I'm going to, to fill you. And in that promise, oftentimes we kind of get a little bit out, spun out. I'm like, is this really going to happen? Is it going to come true? But Jesus, he, he does the work. That's the story of, of this passage. He is our brother. That's what he told them. Right? Remember Luke chapter 8, verse 21? They go to him, and they say, hey, Jesus, your, your, your mother and your brothers are here. And he tells them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So he's called us to hear the word of God and do it. And so he's told us, like, we could be, we could, he could be our brother. He could be our brother. We could be in the relationship with him. The book of Hebrews lays it out for us this way. He's in chapter 2, verse 11, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Right? So he's making this one family. That's, he's, he says, if you hear my word and do it, you're in my family. There's one source, one Lord. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. So now there's this idea of, of brotherhood that exists. That the scriptures lay out first. I mean, you could find plenty of other places. Maybe consider one more. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So he's going to be the firstborn and then many brothers. That's where we have this relationship here. And so as we are here in this particular situation, we're hearing this guy, Jesus doesn't want to deal with like the, the temporary. He wants to deal with the eternal. Is all of this going to come true? If we lose his life, if we lose our lives for his sake, will we find it? And he says, I promise you, you will. He's told us that this will be the case. And so as this man asks this question, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. In that very question, we find that Jesus is saying, I'm going to teach you how to walk the path so that you will indeed lose your life for my sake and that you will find it in me and that you will be my brother and I will divide my inheritance with you. I will give you what belongs to me. I will make it yours. This brother may have been unfaithful, but I am the, the, the most faithful brother, the firstborn. Romans chapter 8, in that same passage, 
verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So his Spirit within us bears witness we are children of God. And if children, verse 17, then heirs, heirs of God and, here it is, fellow heirs with Christ. He has agreed to divide his inheritance with us, to give us what this other brother would not give. He has agreed to allow that to be offered to us. We finish with these words in 1 Peter chapter 1, the opening here, the promise, right? Okay, now we're, we're coming to the final full circle. Remember, it was Peter who failed to confess Christ before men. He denied Christ, right? And Jesus tells us there in chapter 10 of, uh, I mean, verse 10 of chapter 12, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Right? And we find that, that it was Peter there who denied Christ three times. And yet, after the resurrection, Jesus went to Peter and showed him to there, and Peter responded in kind, and he repented. He was not cut off, despite his, his, his sin. He was welcomed back into the family as he, as he confessed Christ. And here we find him being considered a brother, and receiving the inheritance, and giving us the guarantee and promise of that inheritance being kept for us in 1 Peter chapter 1, we read this, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. He is the example that Jesus keeps his word here. He continues on the path. He says there is an inheritance. There is a promise that Jesus is willing to give to us. It's not on the basis of your deservedness, but rather on your recognition that you don't deserve it. You can't make a case for why you should get his inheritance. You can't say, well, you know, I'm really great. I'm really good enough. I've really put in the hard work. I really deserve this. No, it's precisely uh, in your weakness, in your brokenness, in your lack that he is willing to provide. Lose your life for his sake and you will find it. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. This is the question that comes out. We don't even have to ask Jesus. He did it before we even asked. He volunteered it. I will go. I will be the more faithful brother. I will willingly divide the inheritance to bring many sons to glory. What a joy it is to then walk with him. When you have that type of perspective, when you have that type of understanding, 
And when you realize what God has given to you in providing an inheritance for you, I'll tell you, it really helps a lot with covetousness because you don't think like, well, God's given me a short end of the stick here. He's not really giving me anything good. It helps you understand like, okay, well, like he went way above and beyond and like into stuff I don't even deserve. So I, I could just be like pretty happy and satisfied with this. What great love, what depth, what character and faith he has shown. He keeps his promises. When we see all that, it causes us to want to be rich toward God, to pursue him, to invest in that. If you're going to invest in something, invest in that. It always pays off. I mean, he's going to lay out some more stuff as we move, but invest, pursue, and walk with the king. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your kindness and love. We're grateful that you have saved and, and made us one. We're grateful that you have changed us and transformed us through the work of your Holy Spirit. And we yield to you. We ask you to um, to cause us to see uh, the value of of being rich toward you, or that we want to uh, understand and acknowledge that the possessions, the pursuits of uh, this world are only going to lead us away from you. They're going to distract us from being rich toward you. You've given us more than we could ever imagine, and you've got more in store. And so we want to come to you and acknowledge your kind and good rule over us and ask that you would shape us and transform us as we learn to live in these new ways, as we learn to uh, put to death those sinful behaviors and our activities that offend you so. And so, Lord, help us to see you clearly and to be in awe of your love and your work. And be glorified in your church, Jesus. We love you. Amen.